is completely unbalanced and and they know that and they use it to their advantage i mean it's just it's a weird thing because it's like everybody involved in it didn't really create the system but everybody is guilty of perpetuating it so there's no effort into changing it because it's like well we're making money this is well if prince took it michael jackson took it you know who are you welcome back to the breakdown with me nlw it's a daily podcast on macro, Bitcoin, and the big picture power shifts remaking our world. The Breakdown is sponsored by Crypto.com, Nexo.io, and Elliptic, and produced and distributed by Coindesk. What's going on, guys? It is Friday, October 16th, and today we have a really fun conversation. My guest today is Andre Anos, better known as recording artist R.A.C., now, the specific context for our conversation is that Andre has been doing a number of experiments with crypto and NFTs in the music space, thinking a lot about how these new technologies could change the way artists interface with fans, can change the business model of the industry as a whole. But what I didn't want to do is just give you guys a kind of crypto talk for 20 minutes that doesn't have the appropriate context. And what I mean by that is that I think that sometimes when we talk about crypto solutions, we totally lose the relevant underlying context of the industries where the problems are that crypto is trying to solve. Andre is, as you'll learn, a geek about technology, but he's coming at this space from the standpoint of a musician, a recording artist, a music entrepreneur in many ways, who's trying to figure out how to evolve and diversify his model while also thinking about different ways to connect and engage with his fan base. When he's doing experiments, it's because they have the potential to change his business to change his way of doing things. And as you'll learn, this isn't a person who's just an artist and stumbled into the business side. This is a person who went and got a music business degree and started RAC originally not as a performing artist, RAC, but as the Remix Artist Collective. It was a, a shop for doing remixes, just as remixes started to be really seen as not only an art form in their own right, but an essential part of releasing a new song. Because of that, we go way back into the music industry. We go back not only into Andre's career, but really trying to understand the problems that artists in the music industry face from an actual business perspective. I thought it was really important to give everyone almost a primer in some of the ways that the music industry operates so that you have better tools to understand if and how these different experiments might be useful to address some of them. I will, however, also admit that I love this space. I don't get to talk about music very much, so this is a little indulgent for me. It's why I'm giving it to you on a Friday. It's definitely a long, long form extended conversation. We talk about culture and markets and so much else. So if you're into this, you will love this conversation. And if you're not, you might learn something. So either way, I appreciate you hanging out and let's dive in. All right, Andre, it is so great to have you here today. I'm stoked to be here. Thanks for having me. So we were just talking about this a little bit before, but there's there's so much to dig into. But I think that sometimes the conversation 
in crypto specifically around some of the things that you've been working on, whether it's NFTs or personal tokens or just thinking about community, they get totally decontextualized and uncoupled from the industry, which has a problem that is being tried to try trying to be solved, right? And I think that I want to take some time to actually kind of bring people into the music industry to understand kind of what the challenges are as an artist, how things have evolved, because I feel like it's really important context for 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 everything that you've been doing. But I guess for people uh, who aren't as familiar, let's go back to the beginning. What is RAC or how has it changed? Because it's changed quite a bit since since first being at RAC. So, okay, just uh, real quick. So basically like uh, RAC as it stands today, to me is sort of an umbrella, uh, some people call it a brand, call it whatever you want. It's sort of a name that I've worked under for many years and I've done a million different things. I've written for TV, film, uh, I've written for a ballet, I've put out original work, I've done remixes, I've done everything. Uh, and, and you know, I've also done a lot of things in, in crypto, uh, especially. So it's, it's sort of like a loose uh, sort of thing like this entity that I, I just work under and uh, and it gives me sort of creative freedom uh, and, and a sense of coherence across all these different things that uh, allows me to be really flexible and jump around all kinds of different uh, projects and and things that interest me really so so that's that's kind of like the the super broad uh, uh, version of it but but to go back to like where, where it started so I was uh, I was in college in, in in southern Illinois, middle of nowhere, and I, I was like trying to um, like break in. I was getting a music business degree, and I was like, okay, uh, like w- there's literally nothing around here. <laughs> like, what am I gonna do? Uh, and I, I basically just realized in my sophomore year, I was like, oh, I actually need to like do something on my own. I, I need to start my own business. Uh, nobody's gonna hand this to me. I, I just need to do my own thing. Um, so my whole approach with RAC initially was to start a, essentially a business, like a, and I, and I called it Remix Artist Collective. So the idea was a collective of remixers that would do work for hire for labels. And that was sort of the extent of the idea. And I brought in a couple of different people and we, we started doing this thing and it actually took off right away. Uh, the, my first client, if you want to think about it that way, is The Shins and like one of my favorite bands. So um you know we we kind of took off right away but um you know slowly what i realized was happening was this uh you know everybody wanted me to do the remixes and not the other guys so it, it kind of quickly turned into more of a solo project um and you know that over time cascaded into all these other different things and uh you know that's i feel like this is so short but like basically like i i've done just like a million different things over the years remixes and all that and it's sort of ballooned into what it is today i guess so i think i want to i want to bring people back so i don't know how much i've talked about this on different past podcasts but uh i've been super interested in the music industry forever like been always a step away a company that i worked on for a long time was helped big brands figure out interesting new things in tech and was very kind of close to also helping them find interesting new artists right and so i've been watching this for a while and i think one of the things that's maybe hard or people wouldn't necessarily understand is that like when you were starting this 2007 2000 
2008, 2009. From a music perspective, right now we live in a world where dance influenced music has totally transcended across all genres, right? And it is just omnipresent everywhere, right? Like the diplomization of absolutely everything, you know? And, uh, and diplomization, I like that. I, yeah, I'll, <laughs> I'll use that from now on. <laughs> right. Um, but the, at the time, that wasn't the case yet. We were just coming up. I mean, the shins are a really interesting case in point. Like, it was that first era of indie where it really broke out with Arcade Fire and the shins and these bands who were actually able to do things, start to rip some autonomy back, pioneer new styles. But this was like the Pitchfork era. And it really wasn't until 2009, 2010, 2011, especially, that dance music started to ascend. Um, and it's interesting. It's f- super fun having this conversation now a decade later because I was just going <laughs> back through my old hype machine like oh, favorites yeah. from from 2011 and it's like a remix that you did with gigamesh who's also mm-hmm. in crypto and then like uh he's, he's Holly- a fan of the podcast by the way i should mention uh, that yeah that's amazing yeah and uh, <laughs> shout and, out to gigamesh <laughs> <laughs> and uh and hollywood the the first yeah. single with with penguin prison and i remember seeing these things that i saw you at south by southwest like i don't know probably a hundred times because i feel like every tech company had you play at their party <laughs> yeah um but but it's it's interesting to hear i guess and this is the, a, a long way of getting to this that you were thinking about it as a business right away too like that that there wasn't necessarily for you going to be this divergence between like you weren't going to separate okay here's my artistic goal and here's my business goal and they're going to be two separate things but thinking about this as like this new opportunity and, and obviously like the the rise of social internet technology was happening along the way too i mean i guess let's talk about technology how has technology like evolved and influenced the way that you think about both the artistic process but also the business process since then because really what we're going to be talking about with crypto is just the next evolution of a technology platform that you're playing with right yeah so uh i i've always been interested in technology i mean i've been playing uh run like linux machines since i was like 13 14 you know it's like sort of been like a interest of mine for, for a long time i've always been following like new platforms and i i, I feel like my career I, I could say this again it maybe sounds obvious now but like my career would not be possible at all without any of these sort of new platforms and technology and, and all that like it, I, i'm not the kind of artist that would work in the traditional system of the music industry i i've had ha- i've had some success in that world but not not through the traditional path you know like like almost in spite of yourself right in some right ways. yeah right so like the the fact that this started yeah kind of like more business-minded maybe or uh, started doing remixes like so that whole thing you're talking about like artistic vision like that really only came after uh and it was almost like i i, I kind of joke around sometimes say that i'm a, I'm a reluctant front man because <laughs> i i've like always been trying to you know kind of shield myself behind other people like do things with other it's like i like i, I was like I, like I was like I didn't want to do that. Like I was just trying to trying to do my thing and be creative and 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 uh, and everybody's like, no, we want you to be the face of this, you know. <laughs> so so that came that came after, and you know, then I sort of embraced it. You know, if if there's enough people saying that that's what they want out of me, it's like, okay, maybe I should take this seriously and, and do it. But um, to, to go back to this technology, I mean, you know, back in 2007, you know, this is the the MySpace era where you know you, you had a myspace profile with four songs and then that was like that was really the industry standard it was like if, if uh you people would get signed off of their myspace engagement you know or how many friends they had it's kind of funny in in hindsight but so in around the same time uh you know blogs started to show up and i was like okay like rss was like a thing and like it's like all, all these different blogs trying to pop up and um 
actually i think i stumbled on it because like there was one blog in particular that posted one of my very early remixes uh like one of the first or, or second one um and and i was like oh this is interesting there's like sort of an ecosystem of of like these like independent writers that just love music and they just want to talk about it and you know blogger was like i don't think even blogger was around it was sort of like everybody had their bespoke little website set up and they were hosting their own mp3s and it's like okay uh you know this this is interesting um so i basically just started reaching out i was like hey how's it going like <laughs> do you want to do you want to talk about my music uh check it out you know like in 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 i i got early i got in early with those people and uh, you know they 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 were still dealing with hosting and like all, all this stuff. So, uh, but but they they were kind of nice to me early on. I think nobody really noticed them. And you know as as it started to grow, suddenly SoundCloud sort of solved that hosting issue because that was actually originally what SoundCloud was for was to host MP3s online because otherwise you'd have DMCA takedowns and like all this stuff. So, so SoundCloud was sort of like a way to mitigate hosting costs and, and copyright protection basically, or like copyright takedowns. So, um, you know, that mixed with then suddenly there's hype machine that's aggregating all these blogs. It was like this perfect storm for me to have this massive catalog of remixes. This is like a couple of years into it. Mm-hmm. Um, where suddenly I'm like dominating the hype machine charts, you know, it was like sort of my little pocket of the world. And then suddenly for at least a couple of years, that was like the coolest thing, you know, that, that was like, that was where labels were finding new artists. That's where fans were finding new artists. The blog scene was like this really cool. Super vibrant for a minute there. It was yeah, really, really it, a thing. It, it, it's really a shame, like how, how it's sort of fallen apart. I mean, I guess that's with all things, but uh, you know, it, it, it was such a, a vibrant, interesting community of like independent writers that, that loved music and they talked about it. It was almost like just because they liked it. It wasn't like it wasn't this, you know, kind of business. Um, you know, I feel like most of them probably lost money. You know, they maybe made a little bit in Google ads or something, but not really. Uh, so I, I, I sort of benefited from that that first wave. And this is all leading into, you know, what you're talking about, like the the boom of the electronic music world. Where I mean, of course, music, electronic music has been around for a while, but but this first real kind of cross section of like hype machine, you know, SoundCloud, uh, you know, early social media, like just all at once was like so perfect for EDM that the labels were like, uh, wait, what? Like, you know, what what what's going on? Uh, you know, they didn't really understand it, and I mean, like, you know, Avicii and like all kinds of people came out of that. Um, even to some extent, the Chainsmokers and. I mean, my career was certainly hyper accelerated by that that movement, even though I never never necessarily felt like completely in that world. I was like kind of tangential, well, the, you know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the interesting thing from a just from music perspective is that like I do remember like 2012 going to like business of EDM conferences that had like the Summit Series kids like hosting a conversation with Skrillex, you know, yeah, yeah, like yeah. about like <laughs> the business of dance music, and it was all lumped in under this dance music rather than just like it's been it's gotten finally like really blurry again where it's like everyone produces like a bedroom producer from 20 you know 10 would even right, if right, you're, right, whether right. you're making hip-hop or you know like every kid on tiktok who's producing music is doing it in a similar way no matter what their genre is right which is amazing like as a technological breakthrough if we're, i mean if we're going to continue that thread like the how cheap it's gotten to record at, on, on a professional studio level with just a laptop that's incredible that mm-hmm. happened in my lifetime you know that's that's 
something to be like super stoked about. Yeah. So anyway, so this is all, all coming up and there's kind of this wave that's, that's riding up, you know, uh, 2012, 2013, it sort of goes mainstream. Um, I think that's where I, where I cut into your story. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, I, I guess, okay. Like 2013. Yeah. Like, uh, I'm sort of, I, I had, a, I feel like at that point I was sort of, I was like five, five years into this, uh, and, and by the way, like I graduated into a financial crisis, so that was great. Yeah, you know? <laughs> like, yeah we've a lot of us share that yeah. that crazy moment. Um, but so, yeah, to, to even the fact that I have a music career is like uh, insane to me. But so, in, in 2013, you know, I was five six years into it, and uh, you know, I, I had started. I had a, a a good DJ career. I was touring all over the world. I'd played most continents. You know, like I. I sort of riding that that electronic music wave um and that was great it was fantastic uh even though i didn't really come from a dj background at all like it was just i was just like a producer like i just made music again literally in my bedroom um and it, so, so <laughs> it, it it just seemed like uh you know like it was kind of the right moment for me to start thinking about doing original work because i i'd, I'd spent so much time doing uh, doing remixes and I'd sort of built a fan base around working off of other people's music, which is kind of an interesting model that didn't really exist before that. Um, I mean, not, not to like, as a, as a full career path, you know, other people had done remixes obviously, but not as like a focus. So I carved out that niche and I was like, okay, maybe, maybe I'll try my hand at original work because like creatively speaking, it's not that different, you know, mm -hmm. um, especially if you're collaborating with a different uh, vocalist or something like that, it's really not that far off. It's at the end of the day, it's all making music, you know, it's a, maybe a different starting point, but um, they're perceived very differently, but uh, technically they're kind of the same thing. So I, I was like, okay, um, let me start working. This is maybe actually 2011. That's when I really started to think about this. And I, uh, I started compiling these these demos these songs that i wrote um you know just instrumental demos and at this point i had built up a network of, of different artists and you know different people that i've remixed and collaborators and things like that so i was like hey do you want to sing on one of my tracks like let's try it out you know and uh i like to, it's funny how my like my aspirations at the time were just so small I was like, okay, maybe I'll do like a 12 inch, you know, like limited DJ <laughs> single type of a thing, white label, you know, something pretty small. And, and, uh, and the, the, rea the first person that actually signed on like officially was uh, Kelly from block party. Mm -hmm. So like, so like, okay, all right. Uh, you know, amazing. And, uh, to, to give him a lot of credit, you know, because of him signing on to this, uh, so many other people were like, oh, okay, if Kelly's on, on this, I mean, it's going to be cool. So like, let's get all these other people. So I, I was able to get a lot of really interesting and some of my favorite artists, like on that first record. And this is something that I did on my own by myself. I didn't have like, I mean, I have a team, like I have a manager and whatever, but like for the most part, it was me just networking and, and building the album by myself. And, um, and then it all culminated kind of like late 2012. We started shopping it around to different labels. Um, Cause at the time that was still like the most obvious model. I mean, let's talk, let's like bring the, the, what the, how the monetary flow of the music business works, like what the, what the standard path was. I feel like, you know, what, what parts of it you've had to participate in or you have participated in versus what parts you kind of avoided. I think that would be really helpful for people to understand too. Yeah. 
So uh, because of remixing, uh, it's interesting because I've actually had the opportunity to work with like literally every label and, and mm -hmm. every model. I've tried everything. I've worked with everybody. Like I, I know who does a good job, who doesn't, you know, so like <laughs> and and those people move companies. So like I kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got to You get a sense of like who you want to work with and who you don't. Um, but OK, so uh, the. There's there's a couple of different models, so I'll I'll speak about it kind of on a high level. But basically, the most prominent model that everybody knows is the major label track. So when I'm talking about major labels, this is uh, you know Universal, Warner, Sony. Those are sort of the three main labels. They control 80% of the industry. They have a lot of power. Without getting like tin foil hat about it it's like they kind of run the show you know and uh so 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 there's a lot of benefits to that and there's a lot of downsides and um and i think at the time especially in 2011 that seemed to be the only real viable option for something that was pop leaning you know mm -hmm. which was the kind of music that i was making and i was doing that very intentionally it wasn't like um, you know, I, I wanted to have something again, because I'm coming from a business mindset. I want to do something that's creatively fulfilling, but also commercially viable. I'm, I'm not trying to, you know, like th there's a, there's a fine line in between the two. And I was trying to, to do that. So it made sense for me at the time really to work with a major label. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it's funny how, like, when you're going into it, everybody is like, oh, this is, this is great. We're all friends. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this, is the, this, is, this is amazing, you know, like Interscope, cool, cool label, you know, and, um, and like, the, and I, I do want to be fair to labels because like they, they do put up a lot of risk, financial risk, they put a lot of money into it and, and all of that. But um, the model is basically, they give you a large advance up front. And, um, you know, this could be anywhere from 350 to a million to two, I mean, depending on who, who you are and how much hype there is. And how, if like other labels competing, you can kind of like play them off of each other, things like that. So so that, that was um, I found myself kind of in that situation where I have like a major label interested in the album that I worked on my own. So it's like they literally had nothing to do with it. I just like I, built, I made it on my own. So the fact that they were into it is like, OK, cool. I have a little bit of leverage here. And, um, you know, they, uh, we, we, we essentially, you know, like I have an attorney like negotiated like basically a pretty standard major label deal, which is, um, you know, a large lump up, up front and in a very low royalty on the back end. So the way that I, that, that's very common is still to this day, is still the most normal thing. Like when Kanye tweeted out his contracts, I'm like, well, mm -hmm. I, got, I pretty much got the same deal. Yeah. I mean, different money, right, different right. <laughs> like money levels, but like essentially the same deal. Uh, and they've been doing that since forever, you know, since the 90s. So it's like there's sort of a precedent set and, and nobody wants to change it. And they make so much money that they don't even care. So it's the, the whole idea is we're going to pay you up front and shut up and make music and we'll we'll maybe pay you again. And we're going to take all the profit, basically. So. I think that's okay if you know what you're getting into, you know, and if if you're okay with making that trade-off in what is essentially a buyout, you know. Yeah.
It's like it's like a mini acquisition of a, like a not yet created creative material. I mean, I think this is where one of the questions comes in. There's there's two sides of the or there's a bunch of different sides of this debate. But one of the things that I'm really interested in is uh, is one is like what do one do people really understand? You know, like what they're getting into, like especially given how aggressive the industry is with kids. You know, 18, 19 year old kids who pop off like uh, that. So that's one part. But the second part is like. What should our expectations be about the ownership of creative work in perpetuity or for how long, right? I mean, this is Taylor Swift's battle, you know, over the last couple of years has definitely been the thing that like has shined the the brightest light on this question. It's like some people are like, yeah, but you signed that deal. You knew that was the terms. Other people are like, yeah, but those terms are almost by definition exploitative. Those shouldn't be the standard terms. That shows an unbelievably unbalanced power relationship, right? It's it's completely unbalanced, and and they know that, and they use it to their advantage. I mean, it's just it's just it's sort it's it, it it's a weird thing because it's like everybody involved in it didn't really create the system, but everybody is guilty of perpetuating it. So there's no effort into changing it because it's like, well, we're making money. This is well. Prince took it, Michael Jackson took it, you know, who are you? You know what I mean? You know, so, so there, there's this, there, nobody wants to change it basically because they're making so much money. Um, and, and the deals are just so unfair that, that, that nobody uh, really challenges it or there's no, you, you just, they, you just can't change it. Like, so. Um, I guess one more, one more question on that, just because it seems like if you're sitting from outside the industry, it's like, well, why, like, why would people take that? Especially like we've got direct connections to fans now, right? Like you can go direct, like you can work around the system. Like that's kind of like a normal thought. And I mean, what role do you think continuing to have a, a pretty strong stranglehold on terrestrial radio and kind of the main mechanisms by which things go really pop, like allows them to perpetuate that? Um, yeah, no, so it's a lot of people make that argument and I think it's fair. And I think things have definitely shifted over the years, like definitely since I started my career, uh, the independent route is far more, um, accessible and viable. And, and we, we can get into that cause that's actually something I did on my ne- next two albums, but, but, but like, in even in 2012, like basically like if, if you want to get, if you want to play on the top level tier, still to this day, really, um, you have to go through that system. It's, it's a well-oiled machine. They control everything. Uh, like if, if you want to play on, on those terms, like they just own it. And they, like, even, even with things like, uh, like, you know, Spotify and, and, and other different platforms like that, they're still heavily controlled by, you know, by, by these three players basically. So, so like if you want to play on that higher level, you, you just, you don't really have a choice. And in like, when we see, we, we celebrate uh, op, like people like Chance the Rapper, which went the independent route, but those are anomalies. Like mm-hmm. that's, that's like, exce- exception proves the rule. Like, like people are like, Oh, well now the, the independent route is viable. No, it's not like uh, not on that level. Like Chance the Rapper got lucky, you know, like um, it's despite all of the friction that he, he that he, he did. And props, props to him for doing that, by the way. But it's, it's sort of like, that it's not actually viable. And, and um, if you want to play on that level, and you, that's not to say the independent route isn't viable. It's like, it's more like on that upper tier where most of the money is made, 
Sure. I think, I think people like people who are, I guarantee you a lot of the people who like listen to the breakdown are want to play whatever game that they're playing, whether it's because they're in crypto or Bitcoin or like global finance or whatever, they want to play at the highest tier tech, right? They don't want to be like a small kind of business. They want to like be the super business. And basically what you're saying is that like, if you have aspirations to that, like, worldwide impact tons of people hearing it like it is the exception not the rule you have to go through this system at least yeah. so far right and so far. even now even now i mean we could talk about this too more like we're sort of in a weird like there is some bits of power shift but you're shifting like the the biggest power tension is in some ways like from this small consortium you know or cabal of companies to a big fucking tech platform which is like the thing that in every other industry everyone is realizing is really really bad for right. the world too is having a single distribution outlet on the centralized create you yeah. know it's like it's that that power like on the one hand you could be like well spotify provides a counterweight and it's like well one they're kind of bought in to the system you know until they can totally take it over but two it's yeah. like what, what we're left with just Daniel Eckville, you know, on the other side. So. Right. And, and, you know, um, I think uh, in between Universal, I mean, this they uh, some of the labels sold equity, but, the, you know, at one point in time, they own 30 percent of Spotify. Right. So, like, uh, it, do, is it really a different system? Uh, it's, an so, insi- so what, it's an insider play. Like, there's yeah. no getting around it. Yeah. Yeah. And so so when your shareholders are setting the streaming rates for artists, you know, what are, what recourse do we have? You know, uh, <laughs> it's like they're incentivized to, to not to not pay us basically. So, so, and, and we, yeah, the, the Spotify model, we, we can get into that. Like I, I, I have some issues with that. Um, but, but yeah, like I, I really think that even though the independent route has become viable and you can still carve out like a pretty good living as an independent artist, but like if you, if you have ambitions to be a big artist, you really don't have an option. Um, and, and uh, it, it's, I think a lot of people don't want to accept that, but it's it's just true. I mean, like even even in 2020, it's it's still true. Uh, I I'd like to think that it's changing, but I think it might take a while. I I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, so so let's keep bringing it up. So you do you go the you doing the major label thing first, right? Is is that so? That's where where we're kind of like picking up the thread of the story mm-hmm. uh, with with that album in 2013. Yeah, yeah. So so I did that, um, and. Like they, they put a lot of resources into it. Uh, they they um, it's it's interesting when 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 a label that scale does stuff. They it's almost careless because they mm-hmm. have so much money. They just they overspend on everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that it's 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 just interesting. Like like for example, we had this one music video where um, one of the ANRs like didn't like it, so we just did another video. And it's like, well, there's sixty thousand dollars that we wasted. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know. So it's like. And that's on me. I have to pay that back, you know? So it's sort of like, like I have no say in it. Like they just decide that. Um, there's a and, lot of, there's a lot of weird things around that too. Like creative control over what a single is going to be, you know, like things yeah, like yeah. that is like uh, often artists are kind of like, okay, I think it should be that, but whatever, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's funny, like going into these conversations early on because it's like, oh yeah, we're very, art, you know, artist friendly, whatever. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, we won't, um, you know, inter- interfere with that side of things or, or whatever. But, um, you know, of course it, w- when there's money on the line, everything mm-hmm. changes, you know, everybody's like, oh, this song's popping off. That's going to be the single, or, you know, we're going to tack on a song to your album or, you know, it disrupts the entire flow. So it's like sort of, um, uh, a loose like uh 
you know, I, I don't know, people are just like, oh yeah, we're, we're artist friendly until we're not, you know? Uh, <laughs> so it, it's, it, it's a give and take. I mean, I, I, I like, I, I really did go into it like knowing that it was a trade-off and that, uh, I mean, in, in all things considered, I had a, a great time compared to some other people that ha- deal with major labels and um, they, they did support me and uh, they, they definitely kickstarted my career in a way that an independent label couldn't. So like to, to give them credit, like they, they did help me in the long term quite a bit. Um, is that worth 85 uh, percent or like 80 percent of my uh, royalties? I don't know. Uh, that seems a little bit lopsided, but, uh, <laughs> you know, but you, so, at least you feel like you went into it, like knowing exactly what you were dealing with, what you were getting into, you know, I, I see that you, you kind of touched on this is like, um, I had a good team. I had a manager, I had experience in the industry. I had an attorney that, that vetted the whole thing, uh, industry veteran, like that, that made sure that it was at least up to par, you know, with like how things are usually done. And, um, I, I benefited from that. So, uh, but there, when you get like, when they pick up some 17 year old kid with no representation and they sign him to like a 10 year deal, it's like, yeah, that's a little shady. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, know, it's, it's a spectrum. I I sort of benefited from like, you know, having, having help, uh, and, and most don't, I guess is my point. Yep. So, so you know, I, I'm, I'm glad that I went through that experience in hindsight. I'm, I'm glad that I went through it. Uh, I met a lot of wonderful people. Again, like this, this isn't like me knocking the people because because th- there's a lot of people that really love music and, and really want to want to see it. But it's sort of like the infrastructure level side of it is is just sort of fundamentally broken. And it's perpetuated continuously by the people involved because there's no incentive to, cha- to change it. So. <laughs> uh we're, we're just at this impasse where it just nothing gets better it's just you know like we chip away at it slowly but not fast enough you know and the the other side of it is that you know when, when the industry really started in the 50s it was i mean uh, people might argue with me but um it's essentially started by the mob you know and they, they like kind of <laughs> you know the, the their idea of fair is a little, maybe a little bit different so like uh you know we're, we've sort of been chipping away at those like hyper you know, kind of borderline extorting kind of methods like over the years and better place now. But uh, yeah, you also had you also had this really interesting phenomenon where the music industry was in some ways like the first that almost got extinguished by the rise of the Internet. Right. Mm -hmm. And what ended up happening is that they learned how to control the internet fat way faster than other industries. You know what I mean? Like digital publishing news outlets and stuff like that did not, right? They had things totally changed around them in ways that they couldn't. Like when Napster was sued out of existence and that kind of all went down, you had a music industry that came back stronger in terms of its ability to absorb, like it tightened control in a lot of ways. Whereas if Napster hadn't been one of those first breakout apps like if if soundcloud was the first thing like napster which is a counterfactual that's impossible to imagine but it's i i don't think it's it's impossible that like the music industry would be in a way different place just by because it wouldn't have had time to adapt you know out from while while the rug was pulled out from under it and and they almost they they really did almost lose control yeah uh we were so close (laughs) we were so close i mean to be honest even uh you know talking about soundcloud I, i like i 
a lot of people don't know this, but SoundCloud was sort of a fully independent company and they had real traction. Like, so when I was signed to this major label, I had like 5 million followers on SoundCloud, like, like this amazing platform. And they were telling me, is like, you can't post on SoundCloud. And I'm like, why? It's because we're currently in a legal dispute. It's like, I don't care. I'm going to post this. And they got really mad at me. Yeah. They like, like, I actually think that's maybe one of the reasons why, um, you know, they just like kind of let me go because I, I just didn't do what they wanted. And, and like, uh, you know, they, 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 like I had this amazing platform where I was reaching all these people and they didn't want me to use it so they could use me as leverage in their internal whatever Right. Uh, buy, well, and buy also because options. it's that's you own that relationship with like with that set of fans, and that's very threatening. You know what I mean? Especially if like if again, if part of your business model is predicated upon owning the mechanism of control. That's why I kind of brought up radio before. Um, it, like that's that gets very scary. You know? Yeah. In in like in around like 2014, uh, 2015, like when all this was sort of unfolding, that's when SoundCloud started to have all these legal troubles, and they were yeah. renegotiating. They were like, and and that's like if you look at my stats, it's literally like that's when all the plays started to go down, and that's when Spotify, the major label owned platform, started to go up. So it it was I think that was like an intentional kind of like they were holding them down, and and let the the incumbent player uh rise even though on the surface not uh, i think i don't think most people realize that spotify was the incumbent player um but it but they were so so soundcloud was like sort of like the last independent kind of platform like that uh that that really had a chance at, at liberating people and um and, and, it, and it just kind of failed uh, and i think I, yeah so this, I mean, this is good. We're going to, we're kind of, I'd love to kind of like fill in some of the gaps in terms of like then how you evolved your strategy and just how you started to think differently post, post that kind of, uh, uh, major label era. But I think that like so much of this comes down to timing and like where power lies. Like, you know, if SoundCloud started today, I mean, obviously this is what I think things like audience are hoping like yeah, yeah. the, the, the challenge, the challenge now is overcoming the hurdles of network effects by everything being on the platforms that they're already on, which is, I mean, the, like, it is the make or break challenge, I think, for so many, you know, not just for music, but anyone who's trying to break out of kind of other systems um, is, you know, can you get like decentralized Twitter sounds great unless you can't get anyone to shift because everyone's on Twitter, you know? Right. Um, so there, there's that issue, but the the power in, like those 5 million fans that you had, or that wasn't enough at that time, probably to do anything comparable. Like it wasn't close enough to uh, a, a one-to-one comparison with the power of the labels for them to have to negotiate. They could just try to kill, you know? Right. Yeah. And, and yeah. I think that's, that that's in some ways, like the farther on we get, the more that these platforms wrest control from traditional systems that's why like that's why it's kind of the scariest thing in some ways when like the old guard buys into the new platforms because they're know. you know they're they're just sort of perpetuating their power in a different way yeah and like the, the way that i think about major labels today is more like lawyers with a little music on the side and, and yeah. it's sort of like uh you know just sort of perpetuating that that stranglehold on on well, because the other thing is like because they control eighty percent of uh, recorded music, so um, <laughs> you know it, it's just like they, they people want to listen to the albums of their teenage years. Of course, they're you know it, it just it, it's it's a very sticky thing. It's very hard to get get out of that. Um, it's amazing. It, it's amazing how much power goes into even those things. Like just, I mean, another case in point is that you know the estate of Prince hires Troy Carter 
to manage his estate because they have to constantly fight those battles, you know, like even though he's gone, they hired one of the like most tenacious people in the industry to protect them against the industry, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's wild. Yeah. It's, it's pretty wild. And um, I guess maybe just to continue the, the, the path a little bit. So, so after, um, after uh, like I had this sort of major label experience, put that album out and, um, and uh, it, it, it did well. And uh, you know, of course it has the machine behind it. They, they definitely leveraged that. I can't tell you how many ads I got. I was in like, you know, like GoDaddy and, uh, yeah. and, and like, at, like Super Bowl stuff. And like, I mean, they just control all this stuff. Like it's, it, it, people don't realize it, but like um, if you see any kind of major ad campaign, it's most likely a major label um, artist. And because that's a lot of the income comes from that. And uh, anyway, so like, you know, I had great, like in, in terms of the like, career building, it's great. Cause I was like suddenly everywhere and, um, it took my career to new heights that I did not anticipate when I was starting, you know, I was just like, again, I was just like doing this remix thing. And then suddenly I'm like, uh, you know, collaborating with all these like pretty well-known artists and, and, and so, so, you know, that, that was going well. I was uh, on tour, like selling out shows everywhere, uh, in New York played, sold out terminal five. And it was like, Oh my God, this is amazing. Uh, and, um, you know, and then after that, like, I think I think I got really lucky, actually, because, you know, the, so I, I signed technically like a five option deal. And what that means is like they give you or they have the option of signing your next five albums. Um, and I, I think because mine, even though it was successful, it wasn't successful enough for them to be like, oh, let's sink another, you know, X amount of dollars into this and uh and, and keep and, and also there was some friction in between uh, us like I, I wasn't i was definitely not happy um and uh and also in the midst of that the sub label that i was on was essentially like sort of disintegrating and moving off so it was like sort of the all these things that combined and basically get, i kind of got to like like leave you know yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, so it was like oh okay sick all right you, you guys let me go a lot of a lot of artists get stuck in these deals forever and and they yep. can never get out so and that ends your career effectively. So I, um, uh, like, I, I feel really lucky that that I, 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 you know, I just got out. So immediately after, like a month later, I was like, because I had already been working on music. It's like I put out a single. Uh, it gets like it's the number one track on New Music Friday. It's like like crazy amounts of plays, and. Uh, and I think the, the label was like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they, I was sort of like, like literally around Coachella, like I, like I was an unsigned artist uh, playing Mojave Tent at Coachella, like, like not not a bad place to be, you know. So uh, so, um, uh, you know, I, I kind of, you know, t you know, a lot of people, there's a lot of interest and, and we sort of again, like I, I've, I've, I'm happy that I have a good team around me. They They know the business. I, I'm very involved in all of this stuff, but, you know, it's really good to have somebody experience, you know, kind of um, around to, to help you guide, guide you through it. And so we had a lot of interest. We kind of talked to a lot of people and uh, even from other major labels and all that. And I was like, I don't I don't want to go through that again. Like, I, I really value my creative freedom. I don't I don't I'd rather take less money and and more upside, more long term and work with the label that uh is cool has a reputation uh like is uh is creatively focused and um 
and you know the, you can pretty quickly weed out the people that are just in it it's like see you know it's not just dollar signs but are just like oh buying into the hype you know totally so so like once i found a, a team and this is a ninja tune by the way or uh, counter records technically is the name uh they have like imprints of the label but um ninja tune was like a very well-known you know established independent label one of the biggest sort of like uh independent labels based in the uk rich history in electronic music started by an artist so it's like all the all the perfect kind of you know things that i was looking for and we really got along and um and uh you know we we did a much smaller deal you know like in fact i actually didn't even take an advance i was like let's put it all into marketing let's 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 just blow this up let's uh i'd rather get money elsewhere doing other things than like taking some check and having to recoup it so i i, I would rather sort of you know build my career that way uh and, and invest in it and actually as of today that second album is now recouped which is sort of unheard of um so like now for the rest of my life that album will be paying out royalties and um and the this i would kind of mention the major label deals are about like 80 20 roughly uh this one um th these are they're different than like net revenue so 50 50 splits so it's like basically after um, all, all the income, you know, anything that we spend is paid off. It's 50-50 split for the rest of my life, basically. Actually, not, not even for the rest of my life. It's actually uh, for 15 years. It's a license. So I own my master's too. Yeah. So, Which is, by the way, this is like, this is getting like a little into the weeds for people, but yeah, it's yeah, yeah, such, no, a, it's such yeah. an actual big deal though. Like, yeah. I mean, so one, the psychological difference between like 80-20 and 50-50 is so insane. You know what I mean? Like, uh, but I also think that like owning the masters is like, this is the thing where you see artists just like later in their career be like, what the fuck did I sign? You know, that like this thing that came from me is just like, I have to beg to use it. Most of the time I can't, they can do it. Like right. my collection can be sold to another. It's just an asset on a balance sheet somewhere, you know? Yeah. 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 yeah it, it, it really is. Um, like again, like I, I was aware of what I was doing. Um, again, my team, they, they were very clear about this and I, I, I made that choice and I'll live, I'll live with it. It's fine. Um, I, I'm glad that I changed that method after, but, uh, but yeah, no, owning your master is definitely important. Um, and there's ways to get it back, you know, reversion and things like that. But, but for the most part, uh, you know, yeah, you're with a major label, you're essentially selling your rights. Um, and uh yeah no it's, it's like with the music industry stuff it's very easy to get in the weeds because it's so it's so different than other industries uh and i think there's a lot of nuance to it that a lot of people don't appreciate but but to your point about the psychological effects like 80 20 feels like they own it i am just collecting something on it potentially 50 50 feels like oh we're partners we're working together we're alongside um they put money into it they invest in it and you know i feel like it's they should get a return on that investment that makes sense to me um maybe it's a little still a little high but yeah. <laughs> but but you know but, it, but it's like that's sort of the model of the independent label which is like 50 50 net revenue um and and then it's a, usually a 15 to 20 year license depending on what, what you set so so they get to they get to monetize by at a 50% rate, all the income that is generated by the album in those, in that period of time. So, uh, that felt pretty good. And, um, the thing is like, if, if an album does really well in that context, you can make like, like life-changing money. 
Um, whereas opposed, you can make life changing or you, you can have an album that's like three or four times as big on a major label and not even change your life at all, uh, f financially speaking. So, um, or maybe not even make any royalties. So it's kind of crazy. This episode is brought to you by crypto.com, the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn and spend crypto all in one place and earn up to 8.5% per year on your Bitcoin. Download the Crypto.com app now to see the interest rates you could be earning on BTC and more than 20 other coins. Once in the app, you can apply for the Crypto.com metal card, which pays you up to 8% cash back instantly on all purchases. Reserve yours in the Crypto.com app today. In this crisis, many investors aim to keep and grow their digital assets. Others seek to maximize the yield on their cash. Nexo allows you to achieve exactly these two goals. The company offers instant crypto credit lines against all major cryptocurrencies, with interest rates starting from only 5.9% APR. Nexo also lets you earn up to 10% annually on your fiat and digital assets. What's more, interest is paid out daily, and you can add or withdraw funds at any time. Get started at nexo.io. Introducing Elliptic, the preferred crypto compliance partner for businesses who want to grow with confidence. The busiest compliance teams rely on Elliptic's rigorous blockchain monitoring solutions to scale up and save money. Protect your customers. Manage your risk. Scale your business. Visit elliptic.co slash coindesk to talk to a crypto compliance expert today. That's elliptic.co slash coindesk. How did moving to the independent label shift how you thought about, well, one, I guess we should also talk about like how touring fits into the business model of, of musicians, especially bringing it up into 2020 and the complete evaporation of that as, mm -hmm. a, as an economic stream. But how did it also like make you think differently or, or about distribution in your relationship with your fans? Because ultimately, that's a lot of what we are going to get into with the, the crypto side of things. Yeah, well... Throughout all of this, I think what I realized, like I had to really hone in on like, what, what do I want? Like, what do I really want at the end of the day? You know, it's like perhaps to make an impact, to reach uh, a good amount of people, uh, to find an audience, to, to have an impact in their lives. Like the, those are sort of the core things that, that I care about. I, I, I want to make a, a living. I want to make a decent living. Like I, I, I don't want to be the meme of the struggling artist that's so tired, you know, like, like, I just want to be paid fairly for the value that people are getting out of my work, you know, I, I don't think that's an unfair thing to ask for. So like, like, I had to sort of think about what, what do I care about? What do I want? And, and then try to, you know, <laughs> find ways to do that. And uh, in the independent route made made sense for me then because uh, I, I like they're investing money and in, in again, we felt like partners we're, we're kind of building this together. Uh, they're, they're helping out the marketing. They're getting it into independent record stores. We're making vinyl, like we're doing, they're paying for music videos. Like they're doing a lot of cool stuff that I probably couldn't do on my own as an independent artist. I didn't have the kind of fine financial, uh, stability for that. Um, in, in, I mean, you kind of touched on touring and all alongside this, um, I feel like touring is kind of like a totally different world. Uh, and actually a much more competitive one. And like, I, I've been thinking about this a lot. It's like, what, why, why is touring 80% of the revenue in, in, for musicians? And I think it really, I think it's because it's, it's a much more competitive market, uh, where, where artists have much more leverage because, uh, there's a lot more competition for, for, so, so the fees go way up, you know, because you're able to, because there's demand and, um, and, you know, you as an artist are creating that demand 
but and this is like probably the closest thing that artists can do to price that you know price that uh whereas with a with a major label it's a lot less competitive there or, or with just labels in general it's, it's a lot less competitive so so it's not really um sort of a, a true market so so the the, the my, my point is like the 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 touring side of it is is a lot more viable and 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 robust and there we're all it's it's fallen into like a better kind of system that feels good kind of for everybody involved you know for, so for example like the promoters that put on shows they take on the financial risk um and they get the upside but for an artist you get perhaps like a guaranteed fee and 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 that is good because then you know what you're going to get maybe there's a little bit of upside for selling out but for the most part it's sort of like a flat fee you know what you're getting uh, you negotiate that feels good so you do it and then you know you can cover your costs you know what they are and uh and you can make a good living doing that so so that's like that to me is a symbiotic relationship versus the sort of toxic you know one-sided relationship uh, uh, of the recording side so um of course that now 2020 completely fell apart because I mean, nobody could have seen this coming, I guess. Uh, and, and, and now uh, I feel somewhat lucky because I haven't relied on live touring for, for a long time. I, I've diversified a lot of other things uh, into other things. And, and I, I, so I'm, I'm not hurting as, as much as maybe some other people, but uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a big blow to the industry. And, yeah. uh, well, and, and presumably like if you diversify, like you diversified intentionally to give yourself like a foundation that could give you more flexibility and freedom. Right. If that's kind of like a goal that you were chasing, like, yeah. it wasn't like you just happened to be diversified and didn't have the tour, you know, most artists don't, they, well, one, they don't necessarily think like that, but two, it's like, it's a whole process to do that. I imagine. Yeah. And, and, um, it's two-sided because like the diversification keeps things interesting and I, I like to write a lot of music. So I, I I have my hands in a lot of different things because I'm just trying to keep it interesting for myself. Like if I'm doing the same thing over and over again, that's, that's like, yeah, I, I go crazy. So, so it, it was, it was partly that, but also it's just more stable over the long term. You know, I mean, people preach this in, in the financial markets and I think a lot of the same things apply. Um, you don't want to spread yourself out too thin, but you know, there's, there's a happy medium that, that makes sense where, where like, if one thing goes down, at least you have these other aspects of your career that are still viable and, 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 and working. So, um, you know, that, that, that was approach. And I was also getting kind of sick of touring. I, I toured for like, uh, seven or eight years by then. And I was just like, I'm tired of being on airplanes. You know, I, I, mm -hmm. I kind of want to spend a little more time at home and, and spend more time working on music really which is my true passion not necessarily touring so um so so i i felt like somewhat prepared for it but like a, a lot of artists are completely blindsided by it and and i remember like in even in march like even friends of mine were like oh yeah we'll we'll be back in july it'll be fine <laughs> like no yeah no, this is not this is not coming back <laughs> uh like essentially um large groups of people in small confined spaces doing non-essential activities. Like, I mean, that's the, it's, it's the vicious combo. Yeah. Yeah. And, and people are, are, I mean, props to people that are trying to be creative with it. Like, like socially the, distanced stuff. The, the drive-in like, shows and stuff. And it's like, yeah. 
um props to you guys i don't i'm not interested in doing that it's just like i'd rather wait you know <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah well so much of that live so much of live music is about like that energy differential and like you've just created this thing that like literally that's where the danger exists is that like that proximity to people like you're completely inappropriately close to strangers yeah. in any like in any other context in the world you know what i mean yeah like there's no other there's nothing else that you can do where like you're basically going to like you know smash up against people for for two hours and, and it's, it's like, okay it's yeah, like it's, it's part wrong, of the experience you know? yeah. yeah uh it's it's it is very interesting it's pretty unique in that sense um you know like that that proximity is really inappropriate in most situations you know so yeah. to to have have that you know kind of thing like happen in a live setting i think is maybe cathartic for people because it's the only place they can experience it and i think a lot of people are are really feeling the lack of that now, you know? <laughs> totally. Yeah. That, that'll definitely be a, a high water mark from coming out the other side of this is like when that type of experience is normalized again, you know, like some people will still opt out of it, but when it's sort of, when it becomes a, a thing that people do, um, let's talk about how, okay. So how, how did you start to get into or pay attention to the, the crypto space? How did you start to, well, one, I guess, just from an intellectual perspective, when did you start paying attention? But two, how did you start to think about it in the context of your own business, your own career as an artist? Yeah, I, I so I, I feel like I probably heard about it, you know, 2013, whatever. I think a lot of people probably saw some article or whatever. Right. Uh, but the, the broader context is that I, I've always had an interest in computer science, um, you know, uh, I, I have, uh, even though I didn't study it in school, I've always been tech oriented. I've had a lot of, you know, I, I, I have a ridiculous like home server set up. Like, you know, I, I just like this kind of stuff. Like it's just nerdy and, and I love it. So in that, in that context, I, I had also, it was like around the same time where I, uh, again, maybe in, in, in the, in the context of like having a little bit of money from, from, you know, for the first time in my life, I was like looking at investments and, and I was starting to diversify that side of things too. And, and I was like, okay, maybe now's the time to look into Bitcoin. And uh, this is probably late 2016. Um, I, I started to look into it. And when, once I really, again, not really coming from a financial background, but from a technical standpoint, I was like, oh, this is really interesting. Like this, like, I, I didn't realize that we had digital scarcity because mm -hmm. I had seen how that ravaged my own industry in 2001, you know, with Napster or like, or just MP3 in general, uh, because to some extent you could, you could argue that the vinyl was, you know, was technically a, an, an artificial limitation. Um, you know, uh, uh, it costs money to make a vinyl. So you, 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 there would always be like some level of scarcity. Uh, so the fact that we were able to do digital scarcity was like, okay, interesting. Uh, in, 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 in Bitcoin's, situation obviously that's a currency but um like okay this is interesting and then i i started digging into it and i that's actually when i discovered ethereum and uh i, f I feel like i stumbled on some video of vitalik peter and talking about ethereum just on a high level uh as sort of like a programmatic blockchain like sort of taking some of the same principles as bitcoin but applying it making it more generalized and it's like okay uh like that's that like my you know so many ideas like oh this could be applied to like a data layer for the music industry because that's we kind of didn't touch on this too much, but it's uh, there's a lot of sort of siloed data that nobody shares with each other, uh, and there's a ton of inefficiency when it comes to licensing. Like I think most things that are licensed today are still done by paper at some point. So the fact that we're doing that in 2020, I think, is absurd. So, uh, <laughs> so, so like to me, it was it was it, 
I wasn't really coming at it from a financial perspective. It was more like this shared infrastructure that no single party can control. And um, that to me was like, oh, I could see this applying to like all kinds of things. And, you know, there, there was a lot of even like blockchain projects that were like creating their single use blockchains for, for that. And that wasn't that interesting to me. But um, and, you know, I kind of looked into like where where things were happening. And that led me to um, sort of be connected with uh these guys at, um, called Ujo Music, and they're based in, uh, they were actually part of Consensus. So like one of the, I guess, maybe you can call them incubators, I don't know, like sort of uh, players in the Ethereum space, like Joe Lubin, one of the uh, co-founders of Ethereum. So, you know, I, I sort of dove into that world. And uh, our idea at the time was like so simple. Uh, it was like, let's, let's essentially create a smart contract that uh, if you put X amount of ether into it, that's equivalent to $10 or whatever, you get a, a link to an IPFS uh, file, like a zip file with the, with the album. So it's like, it's as simple as we're going to get, like, we're not going to overcomplicate it. Um, that's all it is like a direct to fan type of thing. The only thing in the middle is a contract. Nobody's taking a fee, uh, you know, except maybe like transaction fee. And like, you know, at the time it was still very cheap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Things have changed, uh, you know, but, 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 uh, so, so like at the time that was like, like, let's just start here. Let's just experiment with this. Um, and very quickly we realized, oh, we are so early. This is way too like, like getting dollars into, into Coinbase, into Ethereum, into a MetaMask and like getting connected to the website and like saving your seed words. And like, it's like, you know, if, if we complain about in the, in the web two world, if we complain about like one click being friction, you know, yeah, like, right. like 36 steps is not going to help you. Um, yeah. So we very quickly realized that this is a problem and that this is like far too early. And, uh, and that, I, I basically, the, the way that I thought about it is like, this is an interesting experiment. This is an opportunity for me to maybe tap into like this nascent crypto community kind of a thing and essentially promote the album to some extent and um, and get people talking about this idea because this idea of direct to fan, direct to your audience, this direct connection that simply does not exist in in um, in music really and 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 you know it's it's so often like crypto in general is so often used as like we're going to disintermediate everybody and uh and it's true but uh like my industry specifically is just so full of that that this is su such like low hanging fruit um that it it just seems so obvious to me i guess like it was like we got to use this for something and if if all i achieved with that release was just starting a conversation about that then i'm perfectly happy with that and um i have this kind of funny story of uh being on tour in japan and like doing interviews and and with a translator and people asking me about ethereum and trying to explain ethereum and blockchain like through a translator <laughs> is like oh my god you know so um, that, so, that, so that was sort of my first introduction into it. And uh, then, then I got interested in the, the sort of wider ecosystem, you know, obviously the, the crazy bubble, ICO bubble, whatever, like that all was all happening at the same time. And, and then that obviously imploded. <laughs> and, uh, and, so, and but despite that, what, what really kept me going and interested in it was actually that all these devs and all these people that I got to know over the time, over this period kept building and like all these like despite the price whatever going up and down 
all these people kept building and like working on these like really interesting projects and all, a lot of music stuff kept getting built and like Audius is, is an example. And I was like, okay, well, this is, this is really cool. And I, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to stick with it. And I'm, you know, I'm not going to just like, you know, d- like ig- ignore it. Like, like a lot of other people did. And, um, and it, I, I got sort of loosely interested in, in, in what we now call DeFi and, and all of that. So I, I got more interested in the financial side of it as well, but, but for the most part, that's, uh, I mean, w- we can get into like some of the projects that I've worked on recently with crypto, but, but for the most part, I, I sort of, got in 2016 and never looked back. <laughs> so it's not, I mean, it sounds like the, like the, it was these sort of like key, key conceptual changes that you saw as having really rich potential, right? So digital scarcity, what would that mean? You know, uh, disintermediation, an infrastructure that's shared, but not owned or ownable by any one party. Like these things sat as like these, these pillars that you could see something different being architected on. And then first experiment kind of didn't do anything, but the people that were interested in that same experiment just kept building, which kind of brought you brought you along with it, right? Because it's like, okay, well, yeah. let's keep keep fucking with it, you know? Let's keep experimenting, yeah. let's keep learning. And, and and it was it was really, I, I don't know, it was it was sort of like the the core of it. Yeah, I mean, of course, I was, like like everybody was like kind of bummed that it it went from you know fourteen hundred to eighty eight dollars or whatever, and it was like it's like of course I'm bummed about that, but at the, at the end of the day, that's not really. The, the the you know the core of the idea behind it at least the like the the thing that really set sparks off was like this like the three things three or four things that you said uh these core infrastructure pillars that i could see solving so many of the issues that we deal with on in the music industry so it was like well that didn't change so um I might as well ride this out <laughs> see what happens you know yeah, uh, totally. and, and, and stick with it um you know that 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 level of interest you know it kept me there you know so let's let's fast forward to some of the more recent experiments i guess like what you know so what let's start i mean maybe with what you are doing what you've what you've done uh recently and kind of what you're doing now and then we can talk about how those things came about yeah so um i guess like really mostly this year uh, again, I, I sort of been playing with DeFi for a couple of years, and uh, you know, MakerDAO, Uniswap, things like that. Uh, um, and and so, so I kind of played with that, and, and uh, I, I even explored for a little bit, like with with my uh, I have I have a label, I have my own label now, and uh, we explored uh, in a publishing company, so we explored uh, tokenizing publishing uh, assets. So. Um, so that was, and then we quickly ran into like securities laws and stuff like that. And I think it's something like, I'll definitely revisit, uh, once the, the regulatory framework is maybe a little more defined, maybe it is already, I don't know, but, um, it was something we explored for, for a little bit, um, and kind of like tabled for a second. Um, but, and then in, in 2020, uh, again, I actually met, um, met these guys through some of the people at Ujo. So they introduced me to this guy, Jacob from this company called Zora. And the whole idea behind Zora was uh, basically tokenizing uh, small batch, limited edition, like uh, physical goods or merch, you know, if you want to think about it that way. So um, we, we had to, even back in the Ujo days, we kind of talked about like tokenizing. Everybody talked about it, tokenizing physical products, you know, physical tokenizing real estate, you know, all this stuff. And. Um, I always thought there was an interesting idea, but I, I didn't think really anybody had sort of applied it necessarily to the, the small, really small batch niche kind of thing. 
and uh, or 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 definitely didn't apply it to the typical like you know drop culture hype beast worlds or whatever, uh, which wasn't really my world. But um, I, I just thought it was such an interesting take on it. And uh, there was there was a bit of a precursor before this that actually spawned this company, which was called Saint Fame, which they launched essentially like a like a not a hoodie like a long sleeve shirt mm-hmm. that was tokenized essentially. So again, we sort of took that and, and uh, my, my approach was like I'm not going to replace anything that I was already doing. So I, I we had this idea of come of doing a cassette tape, which um, I was again I wasn't going to do anyway. So I was like, well, why don't we make a, a limited edition cassette tape? It was like a hundred units uh, represented by a hundred tokens. What we're going to do is we're going to open it up to a market. We literally put it on Uniswap, so uh, so people could buy and trade it however they wanted. Uh, and, um, and then at a point in the future, you could redeem it and you'd get the, the tape mailed to you. So that was sort of the core idea. And, uh, I guess maybe this is a little bit in the sort of beginning of the hype phase of DeFi and, and all this stuff. And a lot of speculators came in and ran wild with it. So I think the first day we went from 20 bucks to nine fifty, and then back <laughs> down to 200. And then like more, more recently we, we hit, uh, like 4,800. Um, which like $4,800 for a cassette tape in 2020 to me is hilarious. Uh, <laughs> like, like kind of wild. Um, but again, like, and again, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to make the argument that that's like, it's true value or anything like that. But there was actually, actually a period of time where uh, like in between some of these hype cycles, perhaps that it sort of settled, settled at about like 240, 250. And to me at the time, I was like, I guess maybe that's fair, you know, like a market, you know, through price action decided that this cassette tape, if it's limited to artificially limited to a hundred cassette tapes, then that's it's worth, you know, that felt it's like, okay, that's not really where I thought it was going to land, but cool. Um, and, you know, I think what's cool about it from my perspective is like, I didn't come out and say, okay, uh, I'm going to sell a tape at 250 bucks. You know, people are like, you're insane. You know, what are you talking Mm -hmm. about? Like, like, how dare you, you know, like, you know, like people would be (laughs) angry at me for doing that, but because it was decided by a market, it was like, Hey, fair game. Uh, I didn't decide that a market did. So like, I think there's some power to that. And, and I, I, to me, it really actually made me question a whole lot of other things about the music industry of how we price things and, and how we, how we value things. And like, you know, speculators love them or hate them, but, um, you know, they, the, you know, price action is a way to find value or find the value of something, the, the financial value of something. So applying that to like a limited good and was, was a super fascinating experiment. And I think still today, I think it's like three grand or something like that for cassette tape. So it's, I, I, I find it, super fascinating and and interesting (laughs) yeah it's i mean i think one of the i mean this idea i think you hit on like the really powerful idea underlying this too even if someone's like kind of not interested in that the, the cassette tape idea specifically the idea of applying market pricing mechanisms to everything and making it really really frictionless especially around things that have some amount of scarcity or cultural resonance you know like this idea of trying to add or combine culture and markets is pretty fascinating 
fascinating. And it's like, it happens whether we like it or not. But it tends to like historically culture only gets priced by the extreme upper echelons if it's a particular type of culture, right? Otherwise, it's just it doesn't it doesn't have that opportunity. And, um, and I think it's interesting, there's there's a number of different projects, even outside the blockchain space, like Otis, uh, out of New York is trying to do some version of this, where they allow people to buy into fractionalized, you know, uh, you know, early, early Jordans or whatever. Right. Right. And, and I think that, uh, understanding that understanding the relationship between culture and scarcity is part is one part of this. And then understanding the relationship between scarcity and markets is the other part, but it's a pretty fascinating, uh, fascinating way to look at, you know, what, I mean, again, ultimately, a lot of these questions, if we put it in the artist context, come down to what is the right business model for artists? You know, like, should people be totally reliant on touring? What are those other diverse streams, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, so the, the way that I've, I've started to think about this is, okay, um, let's let's agree uh, that what I do has value. It's a non-zero value. I think that's fair to say. Yeah. That, that, like, let, let's not set a number on that, but let's let's agree that that's true. Um, the only way that I can price that value is by partnering with other companies that, um, you know, like very few companies that might give me a not very efficient price for it, you know? So, and, and I'm giving up a whole lot of ownership over it to do so. Um, so, <laughs> so it's like by, by removing that friction, kind of like what you were saying, it, it opens it up to price action in a much more direct way, which I think is very interesting and in in a way that culture really has never had the opportunity to do so. So by pricing culture, I mean, some people will argue that's bad uh, and maybe it's fair. I don't know, but like the current models aren't working. So we got to, there has to be something here. We got to try something. And, and like, uh, I, I think what the, the, the conclusion that we're going to come to, and, and this is this is sort of a new belief of mine, is that I, I think we've been mispricing music for like a really long time. I, I think it's been artificially sort of lowered, and we've been sort of applying this this ad model to music where where it's it it's not pricing it fairly. We in a way the way that I've been thinking about it is like we've been pricing music as if it's supposed to reach six billion people, and of course it's going to fail every time because. Like what song has six billion plays, you know? Um, so, so it, it's this fixed price model that just doesn't r- really make sense. Like, so, so this, uh, I, and I don't really have like a clear answer for this or, or like, uh, like a perfect model that'll fix all these problems. But I think it, w- what I do believe is that we need more experimentation and we need to, um, even if it's artificial scarcity, we need to play with that to find value, the true value of music and culture. You know, I think this could be applied to, to things far beyond, um, to uh, far beyond music. I mean, we're seeing it in NFTs and, and, and other things like that. So it's, uh, like, I, I think it's sort of opening up of a new asset class, a new market that I think a lot of people don't realize that the value has been there the whole time. We've just, it's sort of been subsidized or, or, or hasn't been valued properly. So yeah, uh, I'm, I'm, 
well, stoked it's to see where this goes. Like in in financial in financial markets, in some ways, like buyers price the thing ultimately. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like it's it's demand that ultimately like rationalizes. Whereas in basically every other type of market, the seller prices things, mm-hmm. and inherently that's likely to create inefficiencies in some way. And I think you know I think that the best argument, or like you will find uh, obviously tons of people who fight the kind of like culture shouldn't be priced by markets and things like that. But I think those are accessibility arguments, right? Like culture shouldn't. Cultural shouldn't be priced like people shouldn't be priced out of culture it might be a better way to like like get at that but that doesn't mean that you can't have like as, as an artist you're going to have fans like if if a fan is anyone who likes you between five and ten you're going to have tons of fives tons of sixes bunch of sevens like fewer eights like a few mm-hmm. nines and like a small number of tens a very small but yeah. like like but if if those tens are willing to and want to spend on this type of thing and can vote with their dollars, you potentially have a much more robust, sustainable, uh, like a full, each artist becomes the epicenter of a micro economy that right. is much healthier and better functioning. Yeah, yeah, way, way better. And, and like the, again, going back to the sort of the pricing model that we currently have with streaming, um, it's sort of like, I feel like the play count is a very bad metric of value, you know? So like every play is it like, like the, somebody that listens to it on a Spotify playlist in the background is not getting the same amount of value of a super fan that listens to it intently is like trying to get all, all, all the details out of it. You know, I, I'd argue that that's a little bit different. So like, I, I think there's a lot of room for experimentation and, in, um, in, in, in to do it fairly too, and, and to make it accessible where, you know, yeah, like that upper, the tens or whatever will, will sort of maybe to some extent subsidize some of the, 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 the the ones maybe but uh but the, it'll find sort of a, an equilibrium with within that group uh and like but but the the current state that we're in is that there's no experimentation there's just one model it's binary it's either you you're in or you're out and if you're out you're not making any money so it's like <laughs> so like what option do we have you know um and again, that's changing. But uh, the more experimentation we have with all this stuff, the better. And uh, like, I, I just like may, maybe it's even like certain. Maybe your most popular song is free, but then you, the rest of the album is is on a on a different scale or something like that. I, I I mean, there's all kinds of issues with like user experience and all that that needs to be tackled. And like, again, I'm not saying this is like the perfect solution for it, but I, I think inherently experimentation competitiveness and, and all of that, that's the way to go. Like, that's what we need. We need more of that, you know? Um, we, we need more people playing with this stuff. Yeah. I mean, starting from the premise of, like, actually experimenting is something that has been structurally impossible in this industry and in many industries for so long. So I guess talk, let's let's talk, maybe let's close out talking about the RAC token. Yeah. Because um, that's the, the, the latest uh, experiment, I guess, in this in this series. So uh, yeah, so to, to give it a little bit of context, I um, in, in the midst of COVID, I started, uh, I guess like I started streaming. I, st- I started a Patreon. I, I kind of shifted my model completely. I was like, I am going to stop relying on these other services. Uh, Spotify is not paying. Um, you know, all these other services are not really working for me. So let me try this direct to fan, the more kind of connected to fan model. And see what happens. I, I had an audience, like I, you know, if, if, speaking about Spotify, like I have like two and a half million monthly unique listeners. You know, that's two. You know, that's a lot of people that 
every month will listen to my music. Like, um, if I can capture even just a tiny little fraction of that, like that can be pretty sustainable and that can be a, a pretty good model for me. And um, so I just went for it and it, it, it went way better than I thought. And uh, in, the, in the midst of that, I, I'm streaming and uh, and people are hanging out in the chat rooms and there's like I have like regulars. And so what are you what are you doing on stream just for people who are, who are trying to imagine this? Yeah. So um, it's a mix of performance and improvisation and talking to people and hanging out. It's pretty loose. Uh, it's 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 not it's not meant to be like a live performance in the t typical sense. It's just like if I can call it anything, it's just hanging out, you know, and, and talking to the chat. People ask me questions. We talk about topics. We talk about crypto. We talk about, you know, uh, we talk about philosophy. We talk about all kinds of stuff. You know, we kind of get into it. And um, and every once in a while, like sometimes I'll do like a little bit of a podcast section. We'll have guests and we'll talk about things. And, you know, so it's pretty loose. It's it's uh, you know, it's a, it's a lot of hours to fill. So I, I don't take it too seriously. But but I think in, in the midst of that. I created this permission-based Discord group. So it's like if you're a Patreon subscriber or you're a Twitch subscriber, you get access to this Discord group. And here's where the real magic happened, where I, did, I didn't realize this. Like um, all these people that had been fans of my music over the years, like, you know, 13 years or whatever, they've, it's always been sort of like me and them, but they had never been them together. They had never really like connected with each other. And this was sort of like a turning point for me. It was like, oh, this is super powerful. This is very interesting because like, okay, maybe my music was sort of the thing that brought them together, but suddenly they realized they have a lot more in common than just my music, you know? So now, now we have, in, again, in the context of COVID, a lot of people trying to connect uh, to, to some extent and, and looking to these smaller communities. And I think this may be a trend in general, like moving away from these large platforms to smaller groups. And, and you know, we, we have the, this discord where, it's it's very vibrant. Like people are playing games. They have like uh, meetups. Like the, the like, it's sort of this. They, we have all these channels for different topics, like design, coding, uh, cat photos, uh, you know, cooking, like whatever, whatever you got, gaming, you know, whatever you guys want. You know, we're sort of creating channels for this, and it's sort of become like a hub for the community. And in in a sense, it's becoming that fan club. You know, and and my my approach to this to to bring this all together, my, my approach to this token was like. I'd been thinking about like how to play with tokens in general and in the midst of DeFi and seeing all these platforms create this sense of cohesion and this sort of shared, you know, kind of feeling of ownership over something uh, like if, if people can rally around like a decentralized exchange, you know, like, like, I mean, that's cool, but like, you know, like do most people care about that? Probably not. But like, if you apply that to something cultural, I mean, I think that's pretty powerful. And uh, so, so that was sort of the beginning of the idea. It's like, okay, how do we, how, how do we create this token? And, you know, really not emphasizing the financial side of it at all. It's really sort of just a representation of, of, of sort of ownership and participation in this community. And it can be used for various things within the community. That was the intent. And so, um, and, and the whole idea was like, let me, let me just give it to the people that are participating. Let me, let me, um, uh, it, it's funny because like at the time, like Uniswap then did the retroactive distribution. I was like, uh, we were kind of thinking about that, but didn't really lean into it. So after we saw the success of that, I was like, oh, we should really lean into this. This actually makes total sense. 
Um, so I gave it, I basically gave the token to all my Patreon subscribers, Twitch subscribers, anybody that bought a song on Bandcamp back in 2009, you know, <laughs> got it, got some, got an email with a token, with some tokens. And, um, and this was all done through Zora. So they helped facilitate that uh, through, through their wallet, basically. So all we needed was an email. And so it was like, we're just giving it like, an, and we sort of, uh, we, we looked at, we sort of matched the amount of tokens based on how much uh, money they, they had, you know, things they had bought or how much they supported. Cause that felt like a good metric where people were buying services, not necessarily, they weren't buying the token obviously because they didn't right. know it existed. But so the idea was like, that was a good metric to be like, how invested are they in the project? You know, cause the, the, we're not talking about like super high amounts of money. You know, this is really just like, you know, nobody buys more than like $150 of merch. You know, it's not like, right. you know, it, it's not like we're, it's actually quite distributed if you if you think about it um so it, it's it we don't really have like a whale problem <laughs> let me put it that way <laughs> so uh you know which was just sort of an issue with some of these other platforms um so, so the the whole idea was let, let's let's play with this token let's get it out the door this is really kind of very early on by the way and and it's like let's let's get it out the door let's get it in the hands of people um, see what they want, see what they do with it. Um, we're, we're building like, let's like kind of tip bot within the, within discord. So if somebody makes this funny gif or whatever, you can tip them some tokens or whatever, you know, like it, it's, it's really meant to be more of this just kind of loose community thing that people can play with. And, and, um, and we, we just kind of want to, uh, you know, continue to, uh, you know, develop that over time, but th there is more of a long-term version or uh, vision for it, which is that if this were like, I want to be the experiment, like, let me benefit from being the first. And uh, let's the thing is, like, if this works for me, um, it'll work for a lot of other people. So th so there's sort of an opportunity there as well. So that's sort of the high level thing that we're working on now. And that's called the REC token. And, um, you know, that's, that's kind of where we're at, but still continuously working on it, obviously. What have you seen? Has anything surprised you? It's only been two weeks or so, right? I right, think yeah. since you announced it. Has anything surprised you? Is it like, are people treating it like a financial asset or are people treating it like a community currency, like Reddit clout or something like that? Like, where, or, or is it both? Is it all over the place? I, I would say the the vast majority of people are are, are using it as uh, as like kind of a, a, a I mean, I don't I don't love to use the word currency because that's not how I think about it, but it is sort of a social currency. Yeah, like a Reddit mm -hmm. clout or I mean, it's it's a lot of things. It's a rewards token to some extent, you know, like uh, you could think about it almost like as airline miles, to some yeah, extent. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, it, it, like but but it's not just that you can use it for various things. You know, um, you know, obviously it gives you sort of essentially by owning the tokens, you get lifetime membership to Discord, for example. Yeah. Um, you know, there's there's things like that or, you know, and we're going to add, for example, you want to tokenize ad space on my uh, on my Twitch stream. So anywhere from like a shout out, you know, where it's like maybe a token or two or something like that, like you get a shout out to like the, you know, the full blown sponsorships, you know, so it, it, it could be like various things. And I, I kind of want it to be a lot of different things. And and the, the financial side of it is like we we didn't um we we did not create markets for it we really uh i i've even not spoken about the price anywhere like really want to put all the emphasis on 
on sort of the social side of it. And the other, the, the, like something that we really try to do is give it to non crypto natives uh, because they're like, I think a lot of the crypto natives were, you know, probably immediately going to Uniswap and like, you know, right. Exactly. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> that's, that's the first thing that I thought of in decentralized so, or a permissionless world. Right. But, like, and, and obviously we can't control that and that it is what it is. And like that, the, um, you know, whatever, uh, but we're not going to optimize for that. And th that's sort of like, and I, I've been very upfront about that. And I, I, w I want people to, that's not the intent of this. I, I want people to, to use it for the community. And I want I, like, that's sort of how I'm thinking about it. And again, going back to sort of maybe the early conversation about like, you know, uh, Bitcoin and like uh, as a currency and like it's obviously an um, amazing application of that, but it's it's sort of it's it's one thing and, and it serves that purpose very well. But like um, you know, there, there's so much opportunity to play with this stuff that are not financial in nature. You know, obviously have some financial side to it, but it's not. And it, it, I'm not going to ignore that, but it's also like it, it, I, I think it depends on like where you emphasize that. And obviously in in this context, it's not decentralized you know i mean maybe the the mechanics of it are to some extent but it's not it's it's not what people care about in this community you know um like that, that's not that the focus and that's not the emphasis of it and and i think you can really weed out the financialization of it if you don't focus on it um and um and so 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 that's where i'm putting all my attention is in sort of the non-financial applications of it if that makes sense yeah i mean i think it's like this this has been like an artist pursuit, an artist dream, the idea of like really different holistic types of ecosystems of fans. I mean, I mean, every startup in the music space to some extent for the last 15 years has had some version in their head of like, like we'll help artists connect with their fans more directly. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. We'll, we'll help facilitate that, you know, like, I mean, seriously, every single one band page <laughs> and all these things, they're yeah. all that, but like, but then you take venture capital and you're like what your options are super limited and you get like kind of railroaded into like a very small set of activities that are better, more efficient facilitation of the same stuff that was happening before versus like you kind of you almost have to decouple the financials to allow uh, to allow communities to do things without like without it inherently having a business model, which leads them in a certain direction, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's so true about the sort of that model of of like, yeah, we want to connect the artists, the fans. I mean, I, I actually believe that they really believe in it. Or the, the, I've the, I've never met a music startup person that wasn't super passionate. It's just the, there's such a narrow band of things that that industry allows you to do. Yeah, and and so the the way that I'm thinking about this is a little more open source. It's like you know, I, I think we've seen projects benefit from that, where it's like if you're a part of the community, if you build something for the community, maybe you, you're, the community will reward you in, in, in sort of ownership in that community. So it's like, it's, it's a little less financial in nature and it's sort of more tailored to the people that are a part of it, you know? So yeah, I, that, that seems, yeah, maybe a little more holistic, maybe a little idealistic. I don't know. Um, like I, I, I'm sure there are unforeseen consequences to this that I'm not seeing right now, uh, but I kind of want to be nimble and and don't want to be like this is our vision for it and yeah, this yeah, is yeah. what it's going to be and 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 then you know in two years realize that nobody cares. So um, it, it, I, I really you know getting sort of optimizing for the right people to be involved with it and and getting them to sort of let's build this together that that to me feels 
good, you know. It's super interesting. In some ways, you kind of have these two experiments, which on the surface seem kind of connected and part of part of the same thing. But like you have this one in the token that most people, I think, would they would think token, they would be like, oh, man, that's kind of like historically because of what we saw in 2017, 2018. It's like you do a token. It's like all about financial gain and it's about seniorage and it's about like, you know, benefiting from the money printer. But really, in some ways, it sounds like what you're trying to explore is this whole other side that we forget about in business, which is like people do things because they make them feel good, even when there's not a business model around it. Right. Like mm-hmm. people spend radical amounts of time with streamers not because they get financial reward from it because that's like what they're where they want to spend their time right right and so like communities having a way to interact through a mechanism that's like you know kind of connected to financial stuff but it's not financial so you have this this kind of like little uh, experiment there and then you have this thing in the 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 tape you know uh and kind of nft side which i can see actually like applying markets to culture could end up being some of the most like ruthlessly fascinating like (laughs) capitalist you know like market like like in a way that's potentially really healthy too like opens up new business models for artists but like you could see those arbitragers come in and find fair market values for cultural assets and like be this like crazy fertile like you know financial ground you know so you kind of have like these like things that could go totally different ways even though they seem like almost the opposite you know yeah just for that something happened in with the tape token which was funny um kind of funny i guess but somebody found the uniswap pool and uh they like as we launched and uh and they immediately bought like 24 tapes and then like as soon as the price went out just like dumped it immediately like <laughs> so like it, it's it, we we had like uh, like from the from the beginning we had this like super hyper like trading kind of thing happening and uh you know obviously people trying to make money or whatever but uh and again like i, I don't want to say that that's the right model for everything but it's very interesting and and i think there's a time and place for it and uh yeah kind of what you're saying like maybe there will be sort of over time a mature kind of market making type of activity around cultural like cultural elements i don't know i think that would be super interesting <laughs> yeah well man i appreciate you spending so much time hanging out this is definitely I, this episode's going up on a friday you can tell cuz i just let it let it rip uh, <laughs> i appreciate anyone who's hung out this far um I, I appreciate your indulgence for me getting to spend time in the music space which i don't get to think about that much but um i think these are super cool experiments i've loved watching from a far you know the the career develop and the artistic side so it's really cool to connect on uh on how this sort of crypto industry is is allowing you to take some of those next steps yeah well thank you so much for for your time and thanks for having me appreciate it that interview was super long and super fun so i'm not going to spend a lot of time with the follow-up the wrap-up but the one thing that i wanted to put my finger on is this idea of markets pricing culture or markets being allowed to price culture We have this idea that somehow culture and art shouldn't be touched by commerce and finance, but the reality is that it already is, and it's controlled by a very specific small subset of finance that has been completely prefaced kind of against artists and for the business owners for a very long time. The idea that true free markets for the goods, the intellectual property, the assets that artists create could be valued differently is something that I think is extremely exciting and frankly, extremely capitalist in the best sense of the word. So I think it's really, really cool to see some of those experiments play out in real time. I think that this is just the beginning. I think that Andre is at the forefront and 
It's going to be really interesting to see what happens in the months and years to come. Anyways, guys, I appreciate you hanging out for this long. If you've made it this far, you must be a a real fan or at least really interested in this space. So kudos to you. Hit me up on Twitter. Let's talk music sometime. And until tomorrow, be safe and take care of each other. Peace.